So, Mark. Oh, yes? If you had to spend the night in one museum where all the stuff in the museum came to life, what museum would you choose? So, I've been pondering this question because, uh, to give you a little peek behind the curtain, sometimes we discuss what the opening will be in advance. And this is one where I've really had to put the thinking cap on because... You want a fun experience without things that could kill you. Right, that's the thing. Like, it would be very easy to pick a museum that is, like, mostly inanimate objects. And that way you'll be safe. Like, you don't have the lion issue from this movie. But it's also like, well, what was the point then? Right. The one thing that this movie does not address that I would like to know is, do people in paintings come to life? Like, do you get a kind of, like, Hogwartsy experience if you spend the night in the National Portrait Gallery? See, that's what I was thinking, because I was starting to think that sleeping in the Louvre could be fun, because if the paintings come to life, you can talk to people from throughout history, and there's some statues there that could be fun, there's the giant ancient Sumerian, like, lion protectors with five legs and a human head, so you could chat with them. They might try and kill you, but... I love the, like, jade lion wandering around in this movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, the American Museum of Natural History in New York is probably a top choice answer. Yeah, it's hard to argue with. There's a reason it was chosen for this movie, but I think the Louvre would be my number one. Assuming that I can talk to the people in the portraits. So, if we use the rules of this movie, there's a chance that those people will speak English. Because, like, the pharaoh Achmen-Ra knows English because he spent a bunch of time in the British Museum and picked up the language from hearing people talk for decades. So, as long as the paintings in the Louvre have heard enough English, I think it's plausible that they would be able to speak with you. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That is a good point. I did not think about the language, which is very inconsistently applied in this movie. (laughs) Oh, you think? Did they sometimes make up languages that characters would sometimes only understand? Yes. I did look into it because I thought that this was true. There are only three mostly confirmed words that survive in the Hunnic language. Yeah, the Hunnic language is mostly improvised. Like, that, whatever. The thing that I don't get is that immediately after establishing, like, oh, Rami Malek can translate Hunnic, Attila then just understands Ben Stiller's whole monologue. Yeah, I think that language comes and language goes. You do what you can. I'm playing the most recent, the like 2018 Tomb Raider game because it was free on PlayStation this month. And one thing I appreciate about this series, the rebooted series, is everyone speaks English. There's no explanation for why. You're in a lost city in the Peruvian jungle that has no contact with the outside world, but everyone speaks perfect English. I don't mind. It makes the game more interesting if I can understand the characters. I now really wish that Howard the Duck had once visited Nova Roma, just so I would have an excuse to explain to you the lost city in the Amazon in Marvel Comics that may or may not have been an outpost of the Roman Empire. Nova Roma already exists. It is also known as Constantinople, but now currently known as Istanbul. Mm, But what if it were a city in the Amazon that might have been founded by Romans or might have been founded by people much later who were tricked by a witch into thinking they were Romans and it's been inconsistent across time? Marvel scares me in some ways. (laughs) Here's the thing. Most of this stuff never matters. Like, it's silly to go deep on explaining it. It almost never matters. Yeah, Just go with whatever the story says is true right there. Yeah, I mean, you just go along for the ride. You accept the world as it is, otherwise you get annoyed. That's my philosophy in the real world. That's generally how I try and consume media, is I just try and accept the world as it is and judge quality within it, unless it's glaringly obvious that these choices are bad. And I mean, that shows in how we talk about these romances. Anyway, I've been thinking about museums that I would choose, and... There is a part of me that, being me, just wants to say the National Museum of American History, in part just because I want to see what happens when that giant, like, supersized statue of George Washington, bare-chested with a giant sword, comes to life. I just want to know what he does. I forgot that that exists there, and talking to that statue alone would make that choice worthwhile. Right? And maybe Kermit the Frog could be there with us. I think the Cairo Museum would be fun, too. I haven't been, so that's why I was 
hesitant to choose that one, but there's so much cool stuff in there. You could meet King Tut and all of his generations of inbreeding leading to a very unhealthy child. Yeah, uh, sounds real delightful. The first time I saw the recreation of what King Tut would have looked like, I was very upset. My favorite mummy business is like two years ago when there was a big news story that like archaeologists and sound historians had like recreated what a mummy would have sounded like. And the thing they came up with was like, Ehh. and we were all like, that's it. We had a headline story and years of research to get. Ehh. Researchers in England let us hear what a real mummy sounds like. Ehh. That's the voice of Nessie Amun, an Egyptian priest who lived 3,000 years ago. I had to look around to figure out what was the real sound, because I found that mostly through memes, where people <laughs> were just adding whatever sound they wanted to the mummy. And all of them were more believable than the real one. All of them were so funny. I generally think that spending money on historical research is a good idea, but that one feels like those millions of dollars could have been used other places. Speaking of, did you know that there's currently a project to, like, recreate historical smells? I mean, oh, I guess we'll talk about this next week, but I don't have the best sense of smell, so I'm less interested in that one. Yeah, but also, I don't know that I want to smell time periods before regular bathing was a thing. I mean, maybe a brief whiff of ancient Rome would be enough to make you appreciate the current day. I think the breeding, there's a project where they're trying to recreate the aurochs through breeding cows, which sounds fun. I did know that. I think that's cool because aurochs are cool. How did we get here? I forget. Museums. They're great. Mummies got us here. Oh, mummies. It's so sad that the reason there's so few mummies left in the world is because Europeans in the like late Middle Ages and through the Renaissance up to about the 1700s were just eating them. Hey, how else are you supposed to be healthy? Leeches? Europeans had no room to judge people on cannibalism because there was a lot of cannibalism that happened in Europe in the name of medicine, in quotes. Yeah, well, you know, you don't know if it works until you try it. One of the main sources of income for executioners was determining who got to drink the blood of the dead man and also which person got to rub the dead man's hand on their wound in an attempt to cure it. That I had not heard. Yeah, there was a, like, a lot going on where you would pay the executioner to get access to the dead body first before all of the healing magic went away. That is fascinating. There should be a movie about that. Uh, good idea. It's called Dead Man's Hand, and it seems great. There's a medical history podcast called Sawbones that has an episode just called Medical Cannibalism. So that is, of course, the first episode I listened to. Naturally. It feels like something that Ben Stiller probably learned in, like, his day and a half of historical research. Okay, I want to get into this, but let's start the episode because, boy, do I have some thoughts. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is a podcast dedicated to examining the least important question facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance make any sense? And how is this person struggling so much in life if he can learn an entire museum's worth of history in one day? I mean, the movie answers that question. It's, he is very smart, but he keeps committing his brains to dumb entrepreneurial projects. Um, by the way, this week we're looking at the 2006 family comedy Night at the Museum. I was so angry in that scene where he was just reading all day and then all of a sudden he could answer any historical question because I have taken history classes and I put a lot of work into studying and I still didn't get all A's on my final exams. I checked there is no idiot's guide to Attila the Hun, so that's got to bring down our believability scale a bit. It is very funny because if this movie was made less than 10 years later... He would just be sitting at a computer with, like, 500 Wikipedia tabs open. And that would be the funny visual gag. And there would probably be, like, a cutaway to a troll putting dumb stuff in it. Right. Anyway, so Night at the Museum. Okay, let's talk about Night at the Museum. I feel like we're going to have a lot to unpack. I'm going to say, I found this movie more fun than I expected. I did, too. I think... The quality of the graphics was much higher than I anticipated, and honestly, it made it easier to enjoy. The visual effects are surprisingly good for a family comedy from 2006. Right. The dinosaur skeleton actually did not look terrible. 
at no. all. I found it more fun than I thought I would, but it is not a good movie. All right. I saw this movie many times in the years after its release because my sisters in particular were really into it. I liked it fine, but my sisters were really into it. So it was one of those viewing experiences where I was like, oh, a lot of this movie is still lodged in my brain. But again, I was kind of charmed by it. And I think one of the things that I appreciated was I think it's easy to imagine the version of this movie that thinks it's being really cool by like telling you like, wow, I bet you didn't know this thing about history, huh? I'm blowing your mind. And instead this movie's like, no, we're gonna just give you like the most stereotypical version of every historical thing. But for the most part, they're not gonna be offensive. So you can just kind of like lean into sillier things. Right, the movie is definitely not interested in the history, but I do think that it is a very pro-museum movie, which I enjoy. Yeah, I like that. Like, the movie thinks history is cool, but has no interest in teaching it to you. Yeah, it is not a movie here to teach you. It is not an IMAX movie at a museum where they pretend you're a kid spending a night there and introduce you to all the exhibits. Although they did screen this in IMAX at a bunch of museums. Oh, I'm sure. It is a silly movie where Dick Van Dyke somehow becomes the villain. Hey, you know Dick what? Dick Van Dyke, Mickey like Rooney, it. and Bill Cobbs are the villains who basically trick Ben Stiller into becoming a guard. You know what? They're good in this movie. Uh, Dick Van they Dyke, are. great. This is his first on-screen appearance since 1990. Wow. I mean, he's he, bringing it. He's bringing it. He's doing great. He is doing exactly what needs to be done. Yeah, we're recording this after three episodes of WandaVision. So, like, the culture is all talking Dick Van Dyke. And it's fun to see him just, like, going for it. Yes, I do love that he is just going for it. Oh, this movie was uh, written by Thomas Lennon. Yeah, uh, and Robert Ben Garen. Yeah. Who came out of, like, cable sketch comedy, The State, Reno 911, and then wrote a bunch of. Uh, you know, not so great comedies in the 2000s, like Herbie Fully Loaded, Rocky and Bullwinker, The Pacifier, which we should cover. Uh, I just recently rewatched season one of Reno 911, and it is <laughs> very fun. Is it streaming somewhere? I think I was on the Comedy Central app, maybe. Okay. Not a lot of it. But... Which is a pain to navigate, but has a lot of good stuff. Right. Anyway, Night at the Museum. Not interested in teaching you, very pro-museum, but the whole time I was just thinking, I feel like kids spend nights in museums a lot. Yeah, it's a thing. But I think the difference is, like, spending a night in a museum with, like, some kind of program, it's a thing that people do. It's not a thing that, like, you know, a ton of people do. But there's also, like, something thrilling about even the fact that, you know, Larry's job is to be there. But the idea of being alone in the museum at night is a little bit scarier, but also a little bit more exciting. And that's a big thing about, like, a lot of kids' stories. I mean, the classic one is The Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frank yeah, I was about to say, we've all read The Mixed Up Files. They walk that line where a lot of these stories are about the exciting and scary thing of sort of dipping your toe into being alone kind of like an adult. Right. And I think this movie is playing exactly into the fantasy every child has about what it would be like to spend a night in a museum. But it does it in a way that is very fun, honestly. Right. Because it's not actually that threatening. It's got some scary moments. There's like some mild peril. I love that phrase when it's like rated G or rated PG for mild peril. The wordings on MPAA ratings are always fantastic. Like, they'll specify it's rated PG-13 for sci-fi violence. Uh, update, all of Reno 911 is on HBO Max. Excellent. I love I to go to the Max. Project. So, this movie, I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. I didn't think it was great. I think it could have been better in some regards. Uh, I think it needed more of the docent. Yes, uh, Rebecca, the Carla Gugino character. Right. I think that there should be less Teddy Sacagawea, more Larry Rebecca. So in my memory, that pairing was explicitly romantic. So I was like, we'll have the two pairings. We'll have Ben Stiller and Carla Gugino, and we'll have Teddy Roosevelt and Sacagawea. And that <laughs> is not the case. Notorious eugenicist Theodore Roosevelt, who believed in a firm hierarchy of the races, and the native woman Sacagawea. Yeah, I think we'll need to unpack that. We maybe set it aside until we do the romance, because since there is nothing going on with Larry and Rebecca, we can focus in on that. Right. Rebecca's in the sequels, though, right? 
And it is romantic between I don't them. Know. I've only seen Battle for the Smithsonian. I have not seen Secret of the Tomb. In Battle for the Smithsonian, doesn't Larry have a thing with Amelia Earhart, who's played by Amy Adams? Oh, maybe. Yeah, you're right. What happened? I guess, I mean, she just probably didn't want to be in it, but I I love Carla Gugino, and she was good in this. She could have been given more. Yeah, I agree. I, I do think she does a good job with not a whole lot. Like, you get the sense that she is this person who is really into history and has worked on a Sacagawea dissertation for four years that she's about to throw away. Oh, my God. 900 pages is too many pages for a dissertation. Correct. It's funny. Actually, the character that she reminded me of the most, she's much warmer from the beginning, but she reminded me a lot of the principal from the Santa Claus 2. Hmm. Yeah. Where I think she plays a similar role of, like, getting him into the world. And then also that scene where he's insisting, like, oh, like, stay, the museum comes to life. And she's like, oh, thanks, like, you're making fun of the history nerd. It feels exactly like the I am Santa Claus scene. Yeah, you were right. The thing I find funny is everyone kept correcting him, even her, in saying Sacagawea. And, I mean, it's very contentious. But apparently a closer pronunciation to how she would, like, how it would have been pronounced is, like, Sakakawea. So I think it is funny that this, like, big 900-page book about Sacagawea is pronouncing it. Like, you think she would be the person that would pronounce it the pretentious way? Um, yeah, except I think it's important that the character isn't pretentious. Like, that she's the one who's just excited to share stuff. Yeah, but it's funny You would think she would correct it to the more accurate pronunciation. Right. But I wouldn't expect her to be pretentious with it. That's what I meant, is she'd be the one that would be, like, if someone was saying Sacagawea, which is, in a way, closer, she wouldn't correct it back to Sacagawea. But I think it's important, for example, that we see the scene of her leading the tour of kids around with her talking about how, like, Sacagawea is like the ultimate working mom and totally nerding out because it gives the sense that she is like the best kind of history educator in that she's just excited to share stuff that she thinks is cool. Right. If you don't have a tour guide at a museum that cares about history, it's going to be a sucky day. So that's Carla Gugino. Should we work through some of the other people in this movie? Yeah. Because (laughs) it is a stacked cast. Weirdly stacked cast. I mean, it has some connections to like the frat pack movies of the early aughts where like Ben Stiller was sort of the ringleader of this group with Vince Vaughn and Will Ferrell, Jack Black, Steve Carell, Owen and Luke Wilson that like all appear in a bunch of movies together in that period. And Stiller's a producer on this movie. So it makes sense that he's bringing in a lot of people from that world. Why is Owen Wilson uncredited in this? Because it was supposed to be a cameo. Like, Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson were only on set together for one day. For the rest of the scenes, Stiller was talking to a toothpick. It was just going to be like a short cameo. But then that tested really well with early audiences. So they wrote in more Jedediah business. Okay. I think that they could have gone back and added him to the credits still. I assume it just had something to do with the contracts. Yeah. He's very fun in this. Yeah, he is really fun. And he and Steve Coogan are in the sequels. I will say, you know, it's the kind of thing where, like, Owen Wilson in this movie manages to be a guy who, like, touts the importance of Manifest Destiny. And you're like, he's mostly fun and harmless. Yeah. I mean, it helps that he is genuinely harmless. Right. He is so small. (laughs) And frankly, the bit of the Cowboys and the Romans trying to blast their way into each other's diorama case is pretty funny. It is funny because it also points out the ridiculousness of constant expansion as a way of culture. And also, you just think where you're like, wait a minute, have they been doing this every night for 50 years and making no progress? Speaking of the, let's say, lack of uniformity surrounding languages... Why does Christopher Columbus speak Italian, but the Romans speak English with a British accent? I mean, have you ever seen a movie set in Rome? I assume that's what they spoke. (laughs) I saw The Eagle. Yeah, I've seen everything set in Rome where they all have very RP accents. Yeah. Steve Coogan, of course, has been in another role that we championed because he was Heston the Snake in Ella Enchanted. Was he really? Yeah. What a great role. He's very funny. Two great characters. He's funny whenever he shows up. The Owen Wilson, Steve Coogan parts are some of my favorites because Owen Wilson is basically playing Eli from Royal Tenenbaums. And he's just a whiny child. Just a whiny child who has a cowboy fetish and says, oh, wow. Well, that's written into the contracts. (laughs) Yeah, I assume it is. 
so we've got those guys. We you know we got Stiller in the lead, coming off of this run of like Zoolander, Starsky and Hutch, Dodgeball, Anchorman, Meet the Fockers the year before this. Um, of course, he's the sort of lead in Madagascar. Like, this is a period in the 2000s where he's in, like, three to six movies a year. Like, he was in five movies in 2006. Oh, my God. How do you act that much? I don't know. I mean, obviously, like, the parts vary in size. But it also just speaks to a period when there are so many studio comedies. Yeah, I miss comedy. <laughs> yeah, me too. Like, every once in a while, I, like, try to rack my brains. And I'm like, what's the last comedy that I saw in a movie theater? That wasn't also dramedy. Right. So, like, like is Booksmart the last comedy I saw? Like, does it count? I think so. I mean, a comedy can have a dramatic moment, but that movie yeah. is almost all comedy. I was thinking more like The Farewell is kind of a comedy, but it's also centered around the death yeah. of an old woman. Right, yeah. I would say that doesn't count. But I think Booksmart is probably the last big studio comedy that I can think of. But even that, like, that's not a big studio, right? That's like Lionsgate or something? Yeah. Oh, don't forget Midsommar. Laugh out loud <laughs> oh, riot like, of the year. <laughs> look, that movie is kind of funny. When, I, like, I laugh a lot watching it. That is But fair. it is not a comedy. <laughs> there are some very humorous moments in that movie. Yeah, no, it's just like, if you're not doing Booksmart, then I'm talking about, like, I don't know, Game Night, Uncle Drew. <laughs> Game Night. <laughs> we get into the movie pass era when <laughs> I just saw anything. Game Night was a very surprisingly great movie. That movie rules. Those guys are now making a Dungeons and Dragons movie starring Chris Pine. Interesting. That will not Which work. I, I don't know that I need it. I have little faith in it, but I'll see it. I will watch it because Chris Pine is in it and he is very handsome and I like Dungeons and Dragons, but no media that is based off of Dungeons and Dragons, I feel, has ever done that well. I know Except some people are really into the like, Forgotten Realms novels. Yeah. I guess some of the books are okay. The Elder Scrolls series, I just remembered, is originally a straight-up ripoff of Dungeons & Dragons. I mean, I think part of the thing is, like, novels, and especially video games, are a good medium for adapting role-playing because kind of the whole point is an expansive world that can go in any direction. Whereas a movie, most of the time, is going to tell you a linear story in about two hours, which is the opposite of these expansive anything-can-happen worlds. Which is part of, I think, why video game movies struggle so often. Yeah, I think part of the fun of Dungeons & Dragons is also the fact that it's inherently silly. I don't think yes, there's definitely. anyone that plays D&D perfectly straight and if they do i have no interest in playing with them right like if you're playing D, &D you're gonna make some really silly moves along the way just because you can in playing over zoom during a pandemic i have taken to getting a rubber mallet and waving it around to get in character as my warhammer wielding dwarf and it's helping a lot yeah i mean one of the first things I did playing D&D &D for the first time, because I could, was we captured a goblin and he didn't answer one question. So I took my sword and chopped off a finger because who's going to stop <laughs> me besides Will, who is the DM, and said, you are chaotic good and threatened to yeah. cut me off for my magic because I was uh, divinely powered. That was heavily based on an experience that I had when I was playing D&D &D and burned down someone's house because they wouldn't answer my questions. So if you're not capturing that element of it, it's not going to be fun. So Night at the Museum. <laughs> right. Yes, of course. Directed by Sean Levy, who directed all three movies and did a bunch of comedies in the 2000s. Um, Cheaper by the Dozen, the Steve Martin Pink Panther... Date Night, The Internship. Um, his next movie is Free Guy, that Ryan Reynolds movie that keeps getting kicked down the calendar. I haven't even heard of this. It's like Ryan Reynolds is a background character in a video game that's about to be taken offline, and he's trying to save the people in the game. Okay, so isn't that just Wreck-It Ralph? It kind of seems like it. The movie was produced by a studio called 20th Century Fox that now only sort of exists. That might cause some trouble. Yeah, it's been kicked down the calendar several times. What else has he done? I feel like I have heard of him. Sean Levy? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a bunch of comedies. He directed Real Steel, the uh, not Rock'em Sock'em Robots movie. Which is not chappy. Which is not chappy. <laughs> no, Real Steel is like Hugh Jackman like builds robots that fight each other or something. I've never seen Real Steel. What is chappy then? Chappy's a Neil Blomkamp movie. The guy who made District 9 about a robot who 
I don't know, is a Chappie. Who saw Chappie? <laughs> Honestly, this is serious. If you have seen Chappie, I don't want to look it up. Please email the show and explain what Tweet Chappie is. Hashtag here's Chappie and let us know who Chappie is. Again, we are serious. We want to know. Hashtag here's Chappie. Wait, Sean Levy directed Big Fat Liar. I have not seen Big Fat Liar. You haven't seen? Oh, what a movie. I watched it so often as a kid. Do you know which one I'm talking about? I mean, I'm looking at the poster, which certainly is something. Um, wow, what a poster. Yeah, so Paul Giamatti steals Frankie Muniz's, like, homework assignment to turn it into a movie. So then... Why? Frankie Muniz starts torturing him. And in one scene, he puts blue dye into his body wash. So when he leaves the shower, he's all blue. And I remember thinking that was the funniest thing. Why does Paul Giamatti want to steal Frankie Muniz's homework? Because apparently it's good enough to be made into a movie. This is bizarre. Yeah. And then Amanda Bynes is in it, who is always, honestly, usually very fun. Big Fat Liar is streaming on our beloved Peacock. Well, I mean, if you haven't seen it, I might recommend it, but I don't think it'll be good. I re- I'm not going to rewatch it. Okay, well, that's good to know. Uh, 88 minutes. I loved it as a kid, but I feel like I will not appreciate it now. That feels fair. All right, well, I will maybe check out Big Fat Liar on Peacock. I think that might be one of the reasons why I've heard of him. I was very into that movie. Sure, that checks out. See, when I was a kid and saw this movie many times, the name that I most strongly associated with it from a production standpoint is that this is produced by Chris Columbus during his post-Harry Potter run. Director of the first and second Harry Potter movies, most importantly. And Home Alone. The original Home Alone? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. So as far as I was concerned as a kid, the guy had three stone-cold classics. Yeah, I mean, he's crushing it. Which, in retrospect, the guy had one stone-cold classic. And two okay movies. Chamber of Secrets is... No, it's not the worst Potter movie. I wouldn't say either of them are bad movies, but there's a reason that he didn't direct the rest of them. That he didn't direct any of the ones that are, like, super plot-heavy. Right. Um, Speaking of, like, books being plot-heavy, there was a point on Larry's first night as a guard at the museum where I was like, this movie is credited as being based on a book, and I wonder if it's based on a picture book. Uh, And I was right. This is actually based on... A 1993 picture book by Milan Trenk. In the book, it's just the dinosaurs at the museum that come to life, not everything else. But it has some of that quality of like, you know, you could imagine like turning the page and it's like somebody in a different room seeing something going on on each point. It's not really a plot, just kind of like seeing these different images. Right. Like you start and there's a dinosaur, then you're in the room with the lions, and then you're in a room with some huns. I think one of my favorite things this movie does is... He has that first night and everything's going so poorly and then he works super hard and he comes in the next night and he's super confident. You're like, wow, you figured it out. And then everything falls to shit just as quickly after he's acting so confident. This movie takes place across three nights. Yes. (laughs) Like very explicitly. Very explicitly three nights. Like the movie has no room for it to be like a week has passed because Ricky Gervais is always like, you get one more day. You get one more day. So we can tell how much time is passing. Right. And I mean, he does a pretty good job, I guess, of making friends with people. But I thought it was really funny watching that whole, like the sequence of him strutting his stuff. He thinks he's outsmarted everyone. And then it all goes to shit right away. It's something that it doesn't happen in movies very often. And I find it funny a lot when it does. Yeah. I think this movie somehow works. Yeah. I just, I wish there was a bit more, and this is weird, I don't often advocate for more hetero relationships in movies, but I think I would somehow have enjoyed it more if he and Rebecca were a couple. I feel like that's what I was looking for too, this time watching it, but I also think that like, ultimately that's not what the movie is about. Like the movie isn't about Larry, like, having a relationship with a woman. It's about his relationship with his kid. But I think they should have then cut Rebecca and put the kid in more. Yeah, so that's my thing is, if I'm going to change anything relationship-wise, I think I make the kid have a bigger role. Because, like, that to me is what this movie is about. This is a divorced dad movie about him trying to figure out a way to, like, maintain, like, a good, fun relationship with his kid. And he sees, like, Paul Rudd, who is bringing some, like, nice, goofy stepdad energy. Right, and 
I did like that the son, I think his name is Nick, didn't hate Paul Rudd. Right. And honestly, Larry didn't even hate Paul Rudd that much. No, he's just kind of exasperated by him. I keep bringing up the Santa Claus these family comedies. Like, Paul Rudd is the better version of Judd Reinhold in those movies. Yeah, that's a good... <laughs> I love him. He walks out with his belt, and I la- lost it. And he's holding that big coffee cup. I wish more of Nick's relationship with Larry was told through time between them and less through phone calls between Larry and his ex-wife. Right. That's probably the change you make, is you have less of her and more of Nick. Because there's just so much of their relationship that is told exclusively through conversations about their relationship. It becomes a way to just, like, say a bunch of stuff instead of showing it through meaningful interaction. Right. Because you don't even see, like, Nick not want his dad at career day. You find out afterwards that he, like... You find out through a conversation between Larry and his ex-wife that it was career day instead of Larry talking to his son about like, oh, why didn't I you invite me to your career day or something? So I just wish there had been a bit more there. I think I would have found it more compelling. Yeah, I think that I think I agree with that. And I think that might be more of it. But I was watching this and I felt like there was just something missing. And I think it may yeah, have Yeah, I think it's that relationship isn't strong enough. Yeah, the movie thinks it's about Larry growing up, but there's not enough about Larry previously in terms of his relationships right. to other the people that matter to him. Most of his past is treated as a joke, like the guy who invented the snapper. Right. Which, uh, Which honestly, is funny. Like, funny. Because yeah. <laughs> it is true, not everyone can snap. I mean, at the time I first saw this movie, I could not snap. And so I was like, yeah, justice for we non-snappers. Right. So that was great. One of my favorite lines of this movie is when he's at the employment agency and he's like listen i walked in here i thought we had a connection i thought we had this relationship and she's just like what are you talking about there was nothing here and by the way that employment agent is played by ben stiller's mom that is very fun they do have good chemistry yeah ben stiller has two funny parents i mean i guess if you're that funny you probably grew up with funny people or really unfunny people. Right. It's one or the other. Anyway. So, um, Night at the Museum opened on December 22nd, 2006. So, the weekend before Christmas. It opened in first place with $30 million. So, pretty strong opening. Also in the top five were Pursuit of Happiness, Rocky Balboa, The Good Shepherd, and the feature-length Charlotte's Web adaptation. I think I've seen that. I have not. I also wanted to shout out, also in the top ten, uh, were the film adaptation of Aragon, We Are Marshall, Happy Feet, The Holiday, and The Nativity Story. Should we cover the film adaptation of Aragon? <laughs> I mean, I would do it. Did the romance make it into the movie? That's what I was about to Google. I think that I did not care for the movie, but for some reason I was very compelled by it, and it was probably because I thought the main guy was cute, which, like, I would have been, what, 10? I was 2006. Yeah. So it's like right around that age where you're starting to feel really confused about things. And when you're gay, it's even weirder. I'm sure. Like, why am I watching this movie? Right. Also, Aragon was not a great, like, not a strong movie. I feel like it was one of the last, if not the last movie I rented from Blockbuster. Um, It does seem like the romance has gotten, made it into it. All right. I'll add Aragon to the list. No, it's not. Never mind. I will not add Aragon to the list, which feels like a win for us. Yeah. But Night at the Museum was a big hit. It went on to gross $250 million in the United States. Jesus Christ. And an additional $328 million internationally. Like, this movie made a half a billion dollars. That's so much money. I get why there were two sequels. Right. And honestly, like, that is astonishing. But also, Fox gave this movie a $110 million budget. Like, there's no way a movie like this, at this scale, where it's just like, you know, three nights in the museum with like five characters, gets made for $110 million. Yeah, that's wild. Uh, Real quick, I just want to point out some of the actors in the film Aragon. Yeah, throw them at me. It includes Jeremy Irons as Brom. Right, that's the old wizard, right? Yes. Rachel Weiss as Safira. John Malkovich. Wait, Rachel Weiss? Wait, hang on. Rachel Weiss is the voice of the dragon? <laughs> Indeed she is. Hang- also, 
I deserve some credit for recognizing what all these names are in Aragon <laughs> yeah. at this point. I'm honestly very surprised and very proud of you. I'm astonished at myself. Uh, John Malkovich is Galbatorix. Who is also a dragon? The villain. Okay. And also, there's some other people, but Jimon Hansu as Ajihad. Uh, you know who's never bad? Jimon Hansu. Yeah, you are correct. Wow. What a weirdly who played cast. Who played Aragon? Some guy named Ed Spaliers. I do not recognize that name. He is much less attractive than I would have thought. I had bad taste as a kid, apparently. I mean, that makes sense. He was in... Not for you, just for kids. Yeah. Downton Abbey for two years? All right. Outlander? Yeah. I have no idea who this guy is. All right. Well, like I said, uh, Night at the Museum was a big hit. It was nominated for the Saturn Award for Best Fantasy Film, but lost to Superman Returns. Oh, Brandon Routh. Can't wait to discuss him in our upcoming episode on Dylan Dog Dead of Night. The Saturns really went for Superman Returns that year. They also gave it uh, Best Actor for Brandon Routh, Best Director for Brian Singer, and I think they gave it Best... Yeah, they gave it Best Screenplay as well. That movie... And Best Score. ...was bad. I have never seen it. I had been planning to push for us to do it until the Brian Singer stuff came out, and then I was like... It's not worth it. Yeah, we cannot do that. We should maybe do the original Superman, which I love. I think I liked that. Is that the one where he goes really fast to turn the earth backwards? Yeah. Okay. There's like basically no fighting in it. And Gene Hackman is great. Hmm. Put it on the list. Oh, Aragon was also nominated for best fantasy film. So (laughs) this year at the Saturns, Superman Returns beat out for best fantasy film, Night at the Museum, Aragon, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, Stranger Than Fiction, and Charlotte's Web. I think Stranger Than Fiction would have to be my choice of that list. (laughs) It's not a strong list. Not a strong year for fantasy film. I wouldn't even call Stranger Than Fiction a fantasy film. It requires some stretching. I still think about the I Brought You Flowers a lot. I've never actually seen the movie. Do you know the plot? Yeah, I remember the marketing campaign really vividly. Yeah, so, but Will Ferrell is in love with I think she's she must be like a baker. And at one point to like make up to her after a fight or something, he walks up and says, I brought you flowers. And it's a tray with bags of flour on it. Weird. Because she's a baker. That is stranger than fiction. All right. So should we start talking about the romance of this movie? Yeah. Okay. So uh, every week we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to help us summarize all of the important things that happen. In that cinematic experience. So I think for the romance of Night at the Museum, our first point, we will not discuss Teddy Roosevelt. And for the rest, we will. That's fair. But for point number one, let's acknowledge the romantic backstory of Ben Stiller, who in this movie, despite my memory, has no romantic front story? Romantic interest, even. Right. Hey, how are you, Larry? Good. How you doing, Don? Ben. Can you believe this weather? Chile, right? Mm. Chile, Chile, Chile. Willie, the penguin. And it's weird because some of the scenes with Carla Gugino do feel like there's going to be a flirty thing. Like, there's all the confusion about, like, is coffee just business or is it a date? I wonder if they cut it. I feel like that could be the case. Because it feels like something that could have been filmed and then they just cut out the mushy stuff. The part where they kiss. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah, Ben Stiller is divorced, and his ex is now dating Paul Rudd, who is a fun, goofy stepdad. He's a stockbroker. We are re- He's a bond trader. Bond trader. We are recording this on the day of the GameStop stuff really blowing up, so it was very odd. Well, yeah, today is the day that Robin Hood shut down GameStop trading. Yeah, so it's very funny to think about this man and his belt full of beepers and cell phones and Palm Pilots freaking out because oh, palm pilots stop. but he's very nice to the kid he is on screen for a solid 30 seconds enough to be paul yeah. rudd and then he's gone he did have the number one quoted line from this movie in my house growing up actually to this day um which is that when he comments on the weather and he says it is chilly 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 willie the penguin which my sisters would say Constantly. Did Fiona rewind that line and play it back a lot? Sounds like something she would do. Yes, but she also misquotes the line constantly where she says, Chili, Chili, Willy the Penguin is Chili. But there is no is Chili, it's just Willy the Penguin. It's a weird line. I like it. It does so much to establish that character. It does. 
It really tells you exactly who he is. He's like kind of goofy, but well-meaning. You understand why Larry's ex-wife winds up with a guy like that. Like, having been married to Larry, she clearly has some attraction to a weirder energy. But Paul Rudd's weirdness is much more stable. Yeah, that's a good point. Anyway, that's it for Larry. Point two. All right, let's talk about Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, this is a weird one. Pleasure to meet you, Lord Stanley. You'll have to excuse me, though. The hunt is afoot. So Teddy Roosevelt here is played by Robin Williams. It's kind of great casting. Like, Williams does a great job in the character. Yeah, he does great. It's nothing about the actors or anything. It's just kind of weird when you actually know history. Right. This is the case where what I think is largely a strength of the movie, that it's just doing kind of like the version of history that you're familiar with and not getting pretentious about it becomes a problem because the version that people talk about, which is like, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, the rough rider, butts up against Teddy Roosevelt, the actual person who, while very good on like antitrust policy and supporting the creation of political primaries, was very bad on Native Americans being people. Yeah, he's a very interesting figure. Will sent me an article about his views on race. And it's interesting. I'm going to be posting it on social media because I think it's really good. Because he was willing to accept, which is different from a lot of people, cough, cough, Woodrow Wilson. He was willing to accept that there are good black people, but like individuals, individuals, but as a race, they are inherently inferior to white people. Right. And that didn't just go for black people. He would think of most non-white races in that sense. This is the period of like the peak of social Darwinism where as science and frankly, especially like the concept of evolution becomes more mainstream, it also gets kind of warped by people not entirely understanding it. And it gets used to justify white domination of other races. Right. I feel kind of bad because Darwin was not a social Darwinist. No, he was not. But Roosevelt himself, and I I will post that article because I think it's very good, believed that, like, individual people could rise above their station. He believed that individual progress was possible in a very Horatio Alger kind of way. He was also a guy who said, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm barely paraphrasing. He said, I'm not going to go so far as to say the only good Indian is a dead Indian, but that's true for nine out of ten, and I wouldn't want to look too closely at the tenth. So point two is Theodore Roosevelt is in love with Sacagawea. (laughs) That's right, which is a little awkward for him because Theodore Roosevelt, as makes sense at the Museum of Natural History, is like prominently placed on a horse. Like when they all come to life, he gets to ride around. But Sacagawea and Lewis and Clark are in a glass case, so they can only interact with each other. Yeah. This movie also reminded me how weird some of the exhibits in general at the Museum of Natural History are about race. Yeah. Because it is a museum that's like natural history, so it's got a lot of stuff about dinosaurs and animals, but then also the peoples of non-white parts of the world. Right. It's the problem of you understand how a certain degree of anthropology makes sense in a natural history museum, Mm -hmm. but you have to be very careful if you are white people running a museum that you don't turn anthropology to just be like, People who we in our racism think are less civilized. Right, because walking through, there's like a section on Southeast Asia, and it's like, look at all these cool ancient handicrafts and stuff. And it's like, no, this is just like the fabric people weave there and the shadow puppets that they use to entertain children. It would be like having a Viewmaster in a museum. Right. It's like having a Pinocchio puppet in a natural history museum. You would never do that. So anyway, uh, Teddy Roosevelt on the reg, like, hides in a planter and spies on Sacagawea. Yeah, it's weird. Also, just a weird relationship. I just feel bad for her because she has spent the last 50 years looking out of the glass case while Lewis and Clark argue with one another for 50 years. Yeah, I can't imagine the actual 50 years that passed. It's so long. Like, they must have their memories reset or something, because everyone goes back to one every day, in a way. But they don't. But they they remember each other. They remember each other, but everyone goes back to the same patterns. I do wonder, like, I'm guessing for a good chunk of time, Dick Van Dyke and his cronies have been doing a lot of work keeping everything locked down. So Larry taking over, people have a lot more freedom than they have had recently. Like, somebody like Teddy probably had free roam of the museum, but, like, the miniatures 
would not have. Right. They would have been stuck in their boxes. Right. So I think that's part of why they go so hard. Yeah. So Teddy's in love with Sacagawea and his spy got her. Point three. Another handsome woman, I suppose. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe we should go, uh, go talk to her. Indeed. Yeah. Bless you, lad. All right. Carry on. Point three. Teddy is pushing Larry to be a hero. He talks a lot about how some people are born great and some people have greatness thrust upon them. And Larry gets fed up with Teddy telling him what to do and finally is like, you know, why are you telling me what to do? You've been spying on the same woman for 50 years and haven't told her you like her. Which is true. And Teddy kind of agrees and goes along with the point and seems sad. Yep. Point four. Um, point four. <laughs> I never did any of those things. Teddy Roosevelt did. I was made in a mannequin factory in Poughkeepsie. I never shot a wild beast. I'm not even brave enough to tell that beautiful woman I love her. So, during the big showdown, when Dick Van Dyke and the others try to steal the tablet of Achman Ra, the magical tablet that brings everybody to life, they start busting out, and Teddy is trying to help Larry, and Sacagawea is helping them track a car in the snow where the car would leave tracks. Feels like, you know, I'm glad she got to do something. Feels like they shouldn't have needed her help. Uh, that is honestly one of the hardest laughs I got in that movie is when they're like, we need a tracker. And she comes out and looks at the tracks and it's like, it seems that the car went that way. And then the driver lost control and crashed. And, and they're like, how do you know? <laughs> and the van is literally right there. <laughs> the thing that got me the most for some reason, because like, you know, I am, I think, understandably a real grump about like, civil war revisionism that is just like ah oh, like what a bummer and i'm like no it was it was a war to destroy slavery and that's a good thing but the blank face civil war dummies who fight each other i loved and when larry shouts them down by saying like stop fighting the north wins slavery's bad and one of the southern dummies just like hangs his head for some reason i lost it oh i do want to shout out this movie real quick for casting an egyptian as a pharaoh because it might be... Uh, honestly, astonishing. Even if he is American, it is the closest I've seen to an Egyptian person from Egypt playing a pharaoh in a movie, which I don't think I have ever seen. Yeah, genuinely astonishing. Yeah, and Rami Malek's doing a pretty good job. This is his film debut. This is his film debut? His first movie. Wild. Yeah. Anyway, point four. So the car crashes, so Dick Van Dyke instead has to get away with the tablet by stealing a stagecoach. And Teddy Roosevelt pushes Sacagawea out of the way of the stagecoach so she doesn't get run over. But he gets run over, and his body gets sliced in half. Yeah, but he's made of wax, so she just heats him up and puts it back together? Yeah, it works. Yeah. I guess here is where I have to note that in 2009, the band A Day to Remember wrote a song that was called I'm Made of Wax, Larry. What are you made of? <laughs> uh, oof. <laughs> Which is an actual line from this movie. It is. Uh, 0.5 at the end of the movie. I think they're just together. At the very least, they are riding together on Teddy's horse. Yeah. Which, in this kind of movie, implies that they are together. And that's the end of the movie! <laughs> Yay! There was less romance than I remembered. Yeah. All right, Will. After watching all of this unfold, do you find the romance of Night at the Museum believable? I mean, I guess what it ultimately comes down to is, here's the thing. This movie pointedly establishes that the Teddy Roosevelt in this movie is not the real Teddy Roosevelt. Like, there's a conversation about it where Teddy has to be like, I didn't build the Panama Canal, I didn't charge up San Juan Hill, I wasn't the president, like, I was made in Poughkeepsie, I'm made of wax. So basically, what we have to decide is, is this Teddy Roosevelt racist? I also will point out that there's literally no other human woman full-sized model in the museum. Except for maybe one of the cavemen, I didn't look too closely. Right. So, options-wise... There's not a lot of choice for, like, any of the men. Yeah. I think, to me, it comes down to the question of, is wax Teddy racist? I mean, I guess you could be, like, if the wax is created based off of the ideas popularly held and that would be taught at the museum, he wouldn't be as racist because the museum wouldn't highlight his racism. Right. Especially, like, the 2006 version of the museum. So I think he would be less racist, 
but I still don't think this is a perfect romance. <laughs> no, it happens too quickly. So every week we rate the believability on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being the least, 10 being the most. I would rate this movie like a 6. I'm going 7. Okay. I guess the Larry Paul Rudd stuff is very right. believable. So yeah, maybe a seven. And the end doesn't ask us to think that Teddy and Sacagawea are married, just that she's riding a horse with True. Them. All right, Will. Do you think that Teddy or Sacagawea is dateable? Um, I mean, literally, no. Neither of them is a real person. Okay. Honestly, I like Teddy. I don't know that I want to be in a relationship with Teddy. Oh, He's a he little is way intense. too much. Yeah, he's, like, always demanding, seize the day. Almost like the John Michael Higgins character from Community. Yeah, he just would have way too high of a bar. Sacagawea, maybe. Seems fine. She doesn't get a lot of characterization. Like, her characterization is competent. Like, that's who she is. I'm just realizing how few women there are in the movie. Mm -hmm. There are three? Three. Not great. Uh, Do you think Teddy and Sacagawea would stay together? I mean... They got nothing else going on. Why not give it a shot? But it depends on how racist Teddy is, because if he starts saying some things about 9 out of 10, it's not going to go well. I That's the thing. The big question is, how racist is Teddy? Oh, boy. If you did have to choose a person in this movie to date, who would you choose? No question, Carla Gugino. Yeah, she is a history loving museum docent that would get me free access great tours yeah i'm sorry cute history nerd like let's go there's not a lot of other great options no there are not now mark the most important question here we already said there's a song based on this movie but should the film night at the museum be adapted into a broadway musical no tell me more i think it would lose a lot of the magic of scale on stage Because a lot of this very fun parts of this movie are how all of these different types of exhibits are working together. And it would be less fun if it's just one Attila the Hun and one caveman and one like of each thing. It's fun having the groups of Romans interacting with the big group of cowboys and the jokes about how small they are would be tough to translate. Well, one way or another, we'll get to find out. Because on April 2nd, 2020, Alan Menken announced that he was deep into work on a Night at the Museum musical. Uh, Sean Levy is also involved. And they had a Zoom workshop of it at some point over the summer of 2020. I stand by my answer. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, you convinced me that you're right. But we're going to get this musical. Yeah, well, I will probably not be seeing it. All right, well... (laughs) I think that about does it for Night at the Museum. Next week, we will be covering another screwball comedy with His Girl Friday. I enjoyed this much more than the other screwballs we've watched. Yeah, it's on Amazon. Watch the Digicom version. The one without a... Yeah, the one without legitimate cover art. It is a better transfer. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviewing us on Apple Podcasts is a great way to help us find new listeners. Last question, Mark. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from Night at the Museum? I, I don't know. Become a damsel in distress as a man? Because what really sells Sacagawea on Teddy is him getting chopped in half? Yeah, that works. I was going to say, if you never tell a girl you like her, it makes you look like an idiot. (laughs) All right, there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye.